Welcome back to Talking Feds, a prosecutor's roundtable that brings together prominent former Department of Justice officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. I'm a former United States Attorney and Deputy Assistant Attorney General and a current Washington Post columnist. I'll start today with a personal confession. I feel very on top of the various issues we discuss here on Talking Feds and that dominate the headlines, with one exception. Whenever the subject turns to the counterintelligence investigation of the Trump campaign and the president personally, I have to redouble my concentration just to stay in the game. And of course, I recognize that the counterintelligence investigation may be the most grave, intricate, and important topic of them all. I'm assuming that many of our listeners are like me, and so they are eager for both a real primer on what a counterintelligence investigation is and how it works, as well as a sophisticated analysis of the implications and portents of the particular counterintelligence investigation of President Trump and his campaign. That's what today's episode is about. And to do it, we've brought together two of the most knowledgeable, clear-thinking, and experienced commentators in the country. First, Frank Figliuzzi returns to Talking Feds. Frank served for 25 years in the FBI. He retired as the Assistant Director of the Bureau's Counterintelligence Division in 2012. Prior to that, he was the Bureau's Chief Inspector, the special agent in charge of the FBI's Cleveland Division, and the assistant special agent in charge of the Miami field office. Frank has led teams from Atlanta to San Francisco, including an office in Silicon Valley exclusively devoted to counterintelligence. He joins us today from Tucson, Arizona. Welcome back, Frank. It's a pleasure to be back, Harry. Thanks for having me. And we're joined also for the first time by Josh Campbell from CNN. Josh is a former supervisory special agent with the FBI and served as special assistant to the FBI director. His bureau career included conducting terrorism, kidnapping, and cyber investigations, as well as serving overseas in U.S. embassies and embedded in faraway places with military special operation teams and the CIA. He is an officer in the Navy Reserve and teaches national security at the University of Southern California. We've been trying to have him on for many weeks, and this is the perfect episode to welcome him for the first time to Talking Feds. Thanks very much for joining us, Josh. Glad this worked, Harry. Great to be with you. So to just set things up, I think it's public knowledge that the specific counterintelligence investigation was opened in 2016. The then director of the FBI publicly announced it in March 2017, and then in May 2017, the president was added as a subject, just in the aftermath of his firing of Jim Comey. So, Josh, can you just give us a sense of what it means to have opened the investigation in the first place and then to have added someone in this case, the president of the United States as an additional subject, what that entailed, how many people worked on it, and those sorts of basic 
facts. Sure. So I think it's important at the outset to make clear that I'm discussing publicly available information, uh, you know, nothing from uh, my time in government that, uh, that hasn't since been reported. Uh, obviously, anyone who served at that time would fall under the same restrictions. But let's start with the basics of a counterintelligence investigation. The easiest way to really grasp what an uh, investigation entails is by looking at what it's not. So think about your typical criminal investigation or counterterrorism investigation or cyber investigation where you have the FBI or law enforcement that are trying to stop threats of, of various different natures. They could be violent criminals. Again, it could be terrorists. It could be cyber criminals. And they have tools that they can use at their disposal. Tools like criminal statutes and the like or subpoenas or what? What do you mean? Correct. Yeah. So there's a whole different set of tools that come with national security investigations uh, that go beyond just your typical criminal case. And I'll talk about those in a second. Uh, but when we talk about counterintelligence investigations, we're talking about threats to the United States of America from hostile foreign governments, for example, those who are tasked with trying to steal our secrets, trying to influence our country uh, in, a, in a illegal way. And so you have inside the FBI a robust team, uh, both at headquarters and in the field, Indeed, uh, folks that work overseas that focus on this primary mission, that is protecting the United States from foreign intelligence threats. And that comes under that counterintelligence uh, division and, and cases. Now, as all I'm right. so so, Frank, so all right, shifting to you, we have this team, uh, this robust team dedicated to this purpose within the bureau. And, you know, they come in for work and go to their desk. And what happens that they launch into action in a criminal setting. You know, an agent would come in with a with a report of a crime in a fire station. There'd be a fire alarm. What 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 happens to get these men and women you know going? Great question. I, I found Harry that if nothing else, the special counsel inquiry has been an opportunity for all of us to educate the public on something that historically the public had little knowledge of. And so that's been, if there's one refreshing part of this entire point in our history, it's to try to educate on counterintelligence. To follow up and continue with what Josh was saying, the, the, the powers of the FBI come from a different place when it comes to counterintelligence. Instead of statutes, and there are some statutes, of course, that relate, relate to counterintelligence like espionage, but unlike criminal statutes, the authority of the FBI in counterintelligence comes to us from a presidential executive order, and it dates back to executive order 12333, if, if people care. <laughs> that's most, most FBI agents can tell you, most counterintelligence agents can tell you that that's where their authority comes from. And just to give you an idea of size and scope here... Um, Every single one of the FBI's 56 field offices has a counterintelligence squad. So dedicated agents, whether we're talking about Mobile, Alabama, or New York City, or San Francisco, there are at least one squad, and in these large offices, entire branches of squads dedicated to counterintelligence. So when an agent... Wait, so in a given investigation... Would it be worked by a squad from a single office or many different ones? And about how many, I, I know this might be hard to generalize, but about how many such investigations are open across the country at any one time? 
So that number is is going to be classified because much of the FBI's counterintelligence program, its budget, its numbers is considered classified. But I think to get a feel for this, you if you think about the fact that every single one of 56 offices has at least one squad and many have multiple specialized counterintelligence squads, you're getting an idea that the numbers of, of investigations every year are easily in the thousands. So that's that's what we're looking at. And then... You, see, you ask the question, what would generate a case? Well, a, a little bit like um, criminal cases, they're both proactively generated and they're reactively generated. Generally speaking, there is a foreign intelligence presence in the United States at all times. And historically, um, this has always been the case. Almost every country that's not an ally of the United States spies on us. And one of the ways they do that traditionally is through their diplomatic presence in the country. So if you see a a diplomatic establishment, a consulate, an embassy, it's quite likely that inside those buildings are operating actual bona fide intelligence officers from foreign countries. So that diplomatic presence generates um, a tremendous amount of coverage and interest from the Bureau. And then think about the fact that other non-diplomatic players are involved, whether they're foreign students, whether they're cutouts, operatives, sleepers, travelers, visitors, all here with another agenda, wearing two hats. So there you can see that every field office can come into play here. And if you've got an intelligence officer who's traveling, let's say they're coming out of Washington and they're, they're, they're getting on a plane to go to L.A., you can rest assured that multiple officers are involved in tracking that. All right. Well, so, so Josh, with respect to at least the publicly available information on the, the investigation that was opened in 2016, I think you know there's ongoing political controversy. Uh, at, I've heard uh, a bit of that. <laughs> but you know, fan, uh, advocates of the president are uh, up in arms about the supposed inception of it. I mean, can you illustrate how things kind of were up and running and what kind of predicate legally and in, in sort of legal standards needed to be satisfied in order to start it? How many you know people, how would it have taken account of the high level stakes of this, the campaign and eventually the president? And the extent you can speak to the, the concerns of the, um, uh, the, the Trump camp of, of it having been flawed in, 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 at the inception. So now that we've talked about the FBI's mission and what counterintelligence is, let's all take ourselves back in that time and place in 2016 and put yourself in the shoes of an FBI agent whose job is to protect the country from counterintelligence threats. You have these squads that uh, Frank mentioned. You have a headquarters uh, a division that oversees these investigations and, and you know basically manages the most high-profile cases inside the organization. And they stared at a set of facts where you had people that were associated with the Trump campaign, who had these questionable ties to the government of Russia, a foreign adversary. Now, the FBI, you know, now publicly, we all know that there was a campaign underway by the Kremlin to undermine the election as it related to influence operations, to uh, changing the minds of voters uh, through social media campaigns. They obviously hacked into the DNC.
DNC and stole uh, emails, you know, associated with uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, for example. So you had that robust campaign that was underway, and the FBI and the larger intelligence community knew that the Russians were up to no good. Now square that with a set of facts that the FBI was staring at, and that is you had four people, as it's been publicly reported, associated with Team Trump that had questionable ties to the Russians. The first was George Papadopoulos, who was a campaign uh, foreign policy advisor, who we all know now, uh, you know, met in London with a diplomat from Australia and actually talked about uh, Russia having dirt on Hillary Clinton and offering that up. That was obviously that information came to us from allies, yes, from the Australian intelligence services that works with us. Is that the source of it? That's correct. That has been reported that it came from the Australians, that they saw uh, this uh, this hall of emails that were being released and wondered if that was uh, connected to that conversation that this diplomat had with uh, Trump campaign advisor uh, George Papadopoulos and brought that to the attention of the U.S. government. And so and that just was- as there's kind of, you know, normal adversaries in a sort of list, there's also uh, at least a handful of friendly countries that that will join with us or or, you know, Give us, give us whatever they know uh, to, to they're sort of on our side. That's right. Yeah, there's a special intelligence arrangement sharing uh, a group that's called the, the Five Eyes colloquially, and that is uh, the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And these are countries that share information on a regular basis as it relates to highly classified intelligence. Again, the goal to, you know, if you have something that would help one of your allied partners, you share that information. So that's baked into the, that relationship. And so the Australian uh, diplomat, you know, did what we would expect foreign partners to do. And when you're sitting on something that may uh, help the United States, say stop an intelligence threat. He brought that to the attention reportedly of the U.S. government. So that's one line of effort. I'll hit on the other two real quickly. So you had Paul Manafort, the president's campaign manager, obviously had these questionable ties to Russia and to the Ukraine. You had Carter Page, uh, another advisor to the Trump campaign, had these questionable ties to the Kremlin. He had traveled there. He had been caught up before, uh, as had been reported, you know, being associated with uh, foreign spies associated with Russia. And then the last one was Michael Flynn, who, uh, you know, the national security advisor, as we we all know who left, uh, you know, was fired um, uh, unceremoniously. But at the time, he's had this, these uh, connections to the Russian ambassador that he was lying about. And so the FBI stared at all of these facts and, and wondered, is this something that, you know, obviously it concerns us because we see the number of issues here. But is this a threat? Are these people actually wittingly working with a hostile foreign adversary to throw an election? And that was, again, the work that we expect the FBI to do, to look into that, to launch an investigation. They can't just go and start trolling and digging you know, through uh, records and, you know, w- without actually having an articulable basis to do so. But again, staring at that set of facts, that is what led to this investigation that we now know is the Russia investigation that then was handed over to Robert Mueller following uh, my former boss, Jim Comey's firing, and the results of which we just heard last month. Wow. Okay, so um, a couple of questions this prompt. First, you've had occasional suggestions from Trump himself that, and Giuliani, I know, that, oh, what's the big deal? This happens all the time. Everyone spies on everyone else. So the suggestion would have been, it happened in 2012. It'll happen in 2020. So to the extent you can, you can speak to it, how sort of novel and alarming would a set of facts uh, like that seem to be at the time? And then second, a sort of separate kind of legal question, Frank, is, you know, Josh outlines these facts that are coming to the attention of the people in the counterintelligence uh, divisions. 
Do they weigh them against a particular standard? Is there some threshold or modicum of proof that they have to say, okay, you put these all together and there is, you know, as you might say in the criminal uh, setting, reasonable suspicion, probable cause, you know, is there anything like that to guide the analysis of your sort of blind FBI counterintelligence guy? Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about how counterintelligence cases can be predicated. It's, the truth is that counterintelligence is perhaps the most highly regulated program in the FBI. There are a lot of agents who kind of shy away from it because it's so tightly controlled and regulated, and there are so many hoops to jump through. So, for example, to get to the point where you're at what's called a full counterintelligence investigation, where the entire panoply of FBI investigative techniques are open to you, including FISA warrants, electronic surveillance ordered by a court, the standard is specific and articulable facts that someone is or may be an agent of a foreign power. If you're at the first stage, which is a preliminary inquiry, you're, you're at a reasonable suspicion level that someone is or may be the subject of recruitment or, or an agent of a foreign power. So you've got those th thresholds that get you into a case and have to be approved. And then you asked Harry about how common this kind of thing yeah, when would people be. were looking at this in 2016, you know, the, some, some defenders of Trump would say, you know, oh, this is a real yawner. I mean, I think it struck the normal public, certainly it struck me as a, a, a stunning uh, fact, the, the, the extent and success with which a known adversary was able to interfere with the election. But there have been some suggestions that that's just naive on the part of the public. Well, I, I can say this with, with great confidence. In my 25 years of FBI experience, in, including leading all counterintelligence investigations, there has never been a set of facts that mirrors the degree of interference by a foreign power in an American election. Simply has never happened before. It's unprecedented. The other thing, Harry, <clears throat> that I key in on, on on these facts is not only that a foreign power was interested in getting next to presidential candidate, because quite frankly, that that is common. They, the attempts by foreign powers to influence and shape any candidate that has a serious shot, or even those who don't have a serious shot um, at becoming president, that's par for the course. What, what is not par for the course is the receptivity of that candidate and his team to get that help and take that help. And I think that, in part, is what got the Bureau's attention. You agree, Josh? I do agree. I mean, obviously, the setup circumstances here are unique. Uh, as Frank mentioned, this is not new as it relates to foreign entities trying to influence our affairs. But again, going back in the other direction, we haven't seen where you've had that level of receptivity, uh, you know, actively seeking to set up a meeting, for example, at Trump Tower to see what the Russians have, uh, not picking up the phone to call the FBI whenever a foreign government is attempting to provide information, something we would expect any campaign, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, it goes back to that uh, issue of you know patriotism 
do you want a foreign government influencing our election or do you want law enforcement stopping a counterintelligence threat? We know the, the decision that the Trump folks uh, chose, the decision they made. Uh, and again, all of these were red flags. There have been a lot of villains inside uh, the FBI. Uh, if, you know, if you're in the Trump campaign, I'm talking about uh, D- Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. These were the senior executives. It's important to understand that senior executives inside the FBI, they don't run the FISAs. They don't run the investigations. They don't kick these things off. Sure, they approve them. But for you to for anyone to say that this group got together and said, we're going to employ these tools in order to go after the Trump campaign. They just don't know how the FBI works. The whole FISA issue, I think, is a, is a separate legal and political thicket. And I think Talking Feds will do a whole nother episode uh, on it. It's something that, that you know many people want to know more about. Though the basic point that you make, Josh, that, look, there is serious oversight levels and levels of review, and it's kind of the worst day for an agent when this happens because there are so many hoops to jump through continually, uh, I think really is does respond um, vigorously to the notion that there was some uh, casual plot going on here. When it comes to Struck, Page, and their text messages, I think there are two things that can be true at the same time. The first is they exercise terrible judgment uh, and misbehavior in both the communications, their method of communications, the substance of their communications. I think that it's true to say that that was wrong. I think it's also true to say that that did not impact their investigative work. And the reason I know that is because, again, it goes back to the basic framework of the FBI. You don't have one or two or three people working an investigation, and you certainly don't have that smaller group working an investigation as high profile as one into either Hillary Clinton or the Donald Trump campaign. And so if anyone else on that investigative team up and down the chain of command, down to the street agent and analysts that were working on the investigation uh, from the field office, if any of those people would have thought that their investigation was being uh, swayed or misconstrued based on some type of political, uh, you know, the leanings of one of their executives, they would have been screaming from the rooftops. We would have heard from those people that either struck and page manufactured evidence or they dismissed evidence. We've heard none of that, again, which shows that, yes, they were wrong in their behavior, but it didn't impact their work. Would we be in a different place today if struck and page were not involved in this case? And as Josh referenced, there are so many multiple points of failure that would have to fail, that would just have to collapse in order for the predication in a case to not be there and still have the case proceed. So I have confidence that the structure, the system, the oversight, the lawyers, uh, DOJ, FBI, the field offices all have to get involved and would all have to fail to a point that this became fabricated or falsely predicated. And and I, I hate to say this, but I almost invite the inspector general investigation to determine um, whether or not all these things failed at once. I, I would I would agree with that. And, and, and let me just say also, I mean, the whole issue of uh, a deep state or essentially what the president and you know his allies that talk about this cabal, essentially what they're saying is that the FBI, uh, their leadership was corrupt, that they were crooks, that they were violating their oath by going after a political campaign, which uh, in my judgment is, is complete nonsense. 
because their argument is a house of cards. Now, go back to that place in time where you had the president-elect uh, president Donald Trump, who was then candidate Trump, running for office. And what they would have you believe is that people inside the FBI were trying to bring him down. The one thing that they never acknowledge is that if that were the case, that there were people inside the FBI that were trying to bring down Donald Trump, why didn't they leak that his campaign was under investigation due to the ties to the Russians. What they would have you believe is that the FBI, they were corrupt and criminal and trying to go after Trump, but they waited until after he got elected in order to actually do something about it, which again is nonsense. It's a house of cards. Okay, so let me just ask then, we have all these um, these levels of, of review and care, and now an extra... Uh, serious and unusual step is taken, which is somewhere around May, in the wake of the firing of Comey, the President of the United States is added as a subject to this pre-existing um, counterintelligence investigation. Uh, again, based on public information or surmise, what would that have uh entailed what how how if at all would the bureau have taken account of this you know anomalous and and kind of unsettling fact that the leader of the free world is now part of this investigation frank yeah very significant and i have to tell you i was in a green room at 30 rockefeller plaza at nbc headquarters with Andy McCabe um, as he was preparing to go on the air um, with Nicole Wallace. And we had a very interesting discussion where I asked him to clarify exactly what happened there, because it had previously been reported that he opened a separate case, he or he ordered to be open a separate case on Trump. And what he clarified and later said on the air is that he added Trump's name to the existing Russian counterintelligence case. Now, why is that important? Well, for one thing, by all appearances, it appears that that Russian counterintelligence case was extremely well predicated and was likely a full counterintelligence investigation. Remember, the standard there is specific and articulable facts that someone is or may be an agent of a foreign power. So to add... To ripen, that's, that's the standard to ripen from a preliminary inquiry to a full CI, is that right? That's correct. So if you're adding the president's name to the title of that case, or at lumping in that's his set of facts to the existing predication, um, you've got a significant investigation going. And I think I think we all need to remember that since this all of this is very classified, um, that there's much more to this than we likely know. So we are, we're all talking about the you know you've heard endless amounts of commentary about the Steele dossier, the Carter Page case, and and FISA. There's there's more going on. And I've often said we've seen the tip of the iceberg on on this classified counterintelligence case. Furthermore, we have very little indication, if any, that the special counsel actually took this case on, investigated it and resolved it. And in fact, quite the opposite. In the special counsel's report, we see him reference embedded FBI agents that are there for the sole purpose of funneling intelligence back to FBI headquarters and in what appears to be that counterintelligence case. So, but the larger issue of whether or not this president or others are compromised, co-opted, recruited, or vulnerable to a foreign intelligence service, I believe still 
still rests back with the FBI's counterintelligence division. Wow. And we'll, so we're going to talk about that quite a bit after the break. But, but so, Josh, I mean, same question to you. First, as I understand it, uh, this is a literal fact when, uh, you know, there's a, the, the heading of the CI, there are papers, and the name, you know, Donald Trump is at the top of the, of the caption, as it were. I mean, it's a formal step to add him to the overall investigation, yes? That's right. As it's been reported, you know, he was added to that ongoing investigation. And I think it shows two things. First being that up to this point, uh, he wasn't a subject in the investigation. So this idea that the FBI, again, I just I keep going mm, back to this deep right, state right, nonsense, right. that yeah. they're going after him. He wasn't even on the investigation. And I think because inside the FBI talking to to uh, people familiar with you know what was going on at the time is they weren't sure. They didn't know what his role was. And again, it's a big step to add anyone to a case. And so you want to be able to have those, those specific and articulable facts. And as it related to the president, they didn't. They didn't have that information. Fast forward to May. We know that he had asked Jim Comey to drive the investigation into Michael Flynn. We know uh, that you know there were this, this question as far as Trump Tower and what did the president know at that time about his son taking this meeting. Again, a lot of questions, a lot of smoke there. And then at the moment that he decides to fire the FBI director, the person who's leading the investigation into his campaign in a possible effort to undermine that investigation, suddenly all this coming together, again, a lot of smoke if you're inside the FBI. Why is he acting in this way? Could it be that he is uh, somehow complicit in this effort that we're still investigating. Boom, they add him to that investigation. Now he becomes a subject. And then uh, that gets handed over to Robert Mueller uh, just about 10 days later. Is it your sense that these totally grave uh, suppositions and possibilities have in some way kind of failed to inflame the public imagination, or at least to the extent you would think you know, as you describe them from within the the culture of the FBI, you would think they might. That is, do you perceive a general public kind of shrugging of the shoulders on this stuff? And is it uh, both frustrating, do you think, to you and to members of the Bureau? Or how would you account for it? Yeah, there's a couple of things going on with this. I think first, it's the classified nature of counterintelligence investigations that has precluded all of the facts in this thing from coming out, number one. So number two, we have the shaping of this special counsel inquiry as a criminal matter, not only by the special counsel who felt uh, that he needed to approach this from a criminal perspective, but now, of course, the narrative is being totally shaped by Attorney General Barr, who has said, we're, we're prosecutors. This is what we do. We do criminal. We, and I find no criminal charges can be brought here. And, and so the public has kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, if there's no crime, then I guess we're okay. But that narrative does not serve us well when it comes to counterintelligence, because counterintelligence cases, by and large, do not end up with arrests and convictions or people in handcuffs. But rather, they, the whole goal of counterintelligence is to deter, detect, deter, and defeat the efforts of foreign intelligence services and those working with them. So we're, we're not there yet. And I think, so I think that's failed to properly capture the public attention because, number one, highly classified. Nothing's come out yet. 
significantly. Number two, it's been def- this whole thing's been defined as criminal in nature. And if we don't have criminal charges, then we shouldn't worry. Josh. So I think the larger issue here beyond this one investigation is uh, twofold, first of which being you have the American people that are being manipulated, and I'll I'll call it for what it is. There's been this ongoing campaign of attack against Robert Mueller, against the FBI, against the Department of Justice, again, trying to bill them as acting in a corrupt manner. And myself and many others suspect that this is a political campaign because the president and his allies were afraid of where this investigation might go. And so there's that aspect. And to your point about the public, and this is the second aspect, is that they're being manipulated into not knowing what to believe. Again, you have the president and his base that are they constantly hear that the president is a victim, that law enforcement is out of control. You have uh, folks on the other side of the aisle who are looking and saying, well, Robert Mueller uh, didn't come to a conclusion that the Trump campaign was complicit uh, as it related to the Russians, at least in a way that they could be prosecuted. And so they don't know what to believe. I think at the end of the day. It's a disservice to the public. It's a disservice to national security because the more gaslighting that takes place, the more the American people become numb to this, the less we're talking about the Russian threat, which will continue. This will continue into the 2020 election. We know that they're going to keep at it. We know the president won't uh, criticize Vladimir Putin or Russia. Uh, So we know that they see that as a green light to continue in their efforts. And again, it's going to leave us less safe, in my judgment, as a result. Now, the problem is, is that if you're inside the FBI right now or the Justice Department, the only way that you can actually counter a conspiracy theory is through transparency. You can't just come out and say, ah, look, there's no deep state. Oh, look, this was predicated. You have to show your work. And this is why I agree with something that Frank said earlier, as far as the uh, looking outside the FBI, I talk to people inside the FBI who welcome an inspector general review into their Russia investigation, who welcome Congress turning the place upside down and shaking it and see what comes out, again, because their goal is public confidence. And if the F- if the American people understand exactly what the FBI was, was, was faced with and the actions that they took through a transparent review, I don't think it's going to show a group of criminals. I think it's going to show a group of patriots who saw intelligence threat and worked to counter it. Great point. Now it's time to take a moment to explain some of the terms and relationships that you hear about in this podcast and on cable TV in a segment that we call Sidebar. Today, we are thrilled to have on the show Jane Lynch. Jane is an incredibly talented actress, author, singer, and comedian with more than 200 acting credits to her name. She starred as the delightfully devious Sue Sylvester on the hit TV series Glee and as Sophie Lennon on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. She's also starred in films such as Wreck-It Ralph, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and of course her unforgettable roles in Christopher Guest's ensemble comedies like Best in Show. Today, Jane is going to tell us about the role of a grand jury and how a grand jury differs from a regular jury. What is a grand jury, and how is it grander than a regular jury? A grand jury is a group of citizens, traditionally 23, that investigates crimes and brings indictments, which are bills of charges that begin prosecutions. Grand juries are impaneled and led by prosecutors who use the authority of the grand jury to subpoena documents and witnesses to investigate whether crimes have occurred. 
At the end of the investigation, a prosecutor will usually present a grand jury with an indictment. If the majority of the jurors vote to return a true bill, that means that the jury believes there is probable cause to believe that the individual committed the crime and should stand trial. The use of the grand jury dates back hundreds of years and was recognized in the Magna Carta in 1215. The framers of the Bill of Rights believe that grand juries served an important check on the powers of government by requiring a vote of ordinary citizens before a defendant could be formally accused of serious crimes. The Fifth Amendment includes this protection. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Grand juries typically sit for much longer than regular juries. Federal grand juries usually sit for 18 months, one day per week, and can be extended if needed. Grand juries are usually impaneled to investigate and, if needed, indict all serious crimes occurring during its tenure. But sometimes, if an investigation is particularly resource-intensive, prosecutors will convene a special grand jury that works on that matter only. A grand jury is called grand because with 23 jurors, it's bigger than a regular jury. Regular juries are also called petit juries, from the French word for small. So it is fair to say that a grand jury is usually 11 people grander than a regular jury. For Talking Feds, I'm Jane Lynch. Thanks very much to Jane Lynch. Follow Jane on Twitter at Jane Marie Lynch. You will not be disappointed. Let's return to this incredibly illuminating discussion about counterintelligence investigations with somewhat of a closer focus, if necessarily a little bit more speculative on what happens now. Let me start with the point that I think you made or follows from what you made, Frank, in, in the first segment. We will not necessarily know, isn't that correct, when this investigation ends and with what actions or steps to address the risk or even whether the Bureau feels that the risk has been fully addressed, right? At the end of the day, there might be, for the public, a kind of a black hole. Yeah, here's here's where the role of Congress, I think, becomes very important, because even though as assistant director for counterintelligence, I, I it was not it was not my favorite thing to do to go up to the Hill and brief the House and Senate intelligence committees on our cases. Um, I think they're going to play a very significant role here in 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 helping decide what happens next. By that, I mean, you're absolutely right. Typically, the resolution of a counterintelligence case would never become public. Um, but in this matter, where it could be that the president and or his closest allies, uh, friends, associates are still perhaps in the title of a CI case, then this has to be, this has to, this requires tremendous oversight by House and Senate intelligence. And by all accounts, they have not yet received a briefing on this case. And just so you, the the, oh, even the Gang of Eight has not received a briefing? What I'm, what, what I'm understanding is that the, neither the House nor Senate Intelligence Committee, and I think Adam Schiff confirmed this recently, um, has been briefed on developments in the counterintelligence investigation. So um, that needs to happen. The, the standard is that any significant counterintelligence case needs to be briefed and updates to that case need to be briefed. Now, whether that's happening very quietly behind the scenes 
It, it, I hope it is, but that kind of oversight is necessary in order f- for us to get to the bottom of this and perhaps to have any hopes that the public will find out whether their president is in or out of the title of a CI case. Wow. And so, Josh, I mean, are there any breadcrumbs that we can look at? Any any ways of trying to figure out where things currently stand and what sort of progress, if any, has been made? So this is only going to be more frustrating, but, but no. And, you know, that's for a reason. The FBI conducts these investigations in secret, uh, outside the public knowing for obvious reasons. You wouldn't want them, uh, potential targets, to know that they're being investigated. The sources and methods that were used in these investigations will continue on and be used in other investigations. So it's going to remain very opaque as it relates to the general public. I think that Frank is spot on, though, when it comes to Congress needing to know exactly what's going on. I'll tell you this, having served there at FBI headquarters, Congress, as much as they leak, that gang of eight can keep secrets. Uh, I know that. I know that... You know, many issues that they've been briefed on. What is the Gang of Eight? So the Gang of Eight is a senior leadership inside the House and the Senate. You have the heads of the intelligence committees and the respective ranking members. Uh, you have the majority and minority leader, and the Speaker of the House, uh, and the majority majority leader. And this is the group, of, again, of leaders inside Congress that the FBI, the CIA, other members of the intelligence committee and uh, Department of Defense will regularly update on major investigations, major intelligence operations, uh, again, with the goal being oversight. You want to ensure, and we learned this from the 1970s, that law enforcement intelligence can't just do their own thing. They have to have congressional oversight. And so there's a system set up in place, a so-called Gang of Eight, where they will actually get briefed on uh, issues of, of major interest. And so that that does need to take place, although the public you know, doesn't necessarily need to know all the ins and outs right now as this investigation continues. I think it is, it is incumbent upon the Department of Justice uh, and, and you know the FBI to make sure that these congressional overseers are actually up to speed on what's going on, because otherwise all of that stops with the Justice Department. That stops with the attorney general. If he gets to decide that, no, we're going to you know, sit on this information, we're not going to share it, then we don't really know what's going on. And those are obviously questions that we need answered. And, I mean, let's just, you know, indulge the craziest science fiction Manchurian candidate, uh, you know, supposition and, and try to, you know, overlay that on the normal pattern where you have one rogue agent or whatever. We learn in the investigation that Trump is a stone-cold Russian agent bought and sold the president of the United States. Can it really be that, you know, it that will stay kind of secret and they'll just try to somehow, and, you know, given his position, how would you even try to neutralize such a threat, given that that's the overall goal of uh, of the of an investigation, is not to you know not to bring a case, but actually try to neutralize a threat. Well, Harry, I I've got to <laughs> I I um I, I'm I remain the eternal optimist, and by that I mean that if indeed there was that kind of smoking gun evidence, I have to believe that Bob Mueller, Christopher Ray. CIA director and and maybe the DNI would march into Congress and say um, we have a clear and present danger we 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 have we have a nation being run by a foreign asset and we can't allow this to continue here's what we have I think that extreme example you gave 
is unlikely to be the case because I do. Yes, yes, yes. We hope. I, I do. Be, I, I just I, wondered I believe, how what the process would be. Yeah, I do believe that would come out um, through uh, briefing to Congress. Um, but something less is quite likely, which is um, that we we have a president who is somehow aligning himself with an adversary because of a personal or professional um, compromise or inclination um, that we can't explain um, and that maybe the intelligence community has some answers to. There's, there's a glimpse of this in the Mueller report in the time taken by Mueller to delve into the Trump Tower Moscow project. It, it kind of, in my, in my view, those pages just kind of float there. There's not, there's not a whole lot of reason for the explanation, in my mind, of the Moscow Tower Project, other than to say, you know, we looked at this as a possible motivation for someone who has dollar signs in their eyes and may, and may be inclined to act in his own self-interest. That, that, that part of the report still puzzles me. Yeah, and recall that that we do know because it was an open court that Andrew Weissman suggested that that was quote at the heart uh, of the case. So, so let me pose to you, Josh, a, a much less far fetched hypothetical. We learned, oh, thank you. in fact, <laughs> I'm glad Frank got that last question. <laughs> we learned, in fact, that you know there's some tangible financial vulnerability, something you know that would be concerned. On the one hand, that poses a kind of uh, risk that you worry about, but it's also got a broader political impact that you you know you think is that something the American people sort of need to be aware of or pass political judgment on, or does Congress need to be, et cetera? Is there even a vehicle for that becoming subject to a political uh, judgment and and process, or in fact, is everything kind of hermetically sealed here, and that could be uncovered in the investigation without it ever becoming uh, a matter of public knowledge? Well, this just shows the difficult position for law enforcement in the intelligence community, again, speaking in this in this hypothetical, because the best way to stop an intelligence threat oftentimes uh, as it relates to influence operations is inoculation, is to call it out. That's what we did with the Russians after their election interference. The intelligence community got together, uh, wrote a report, and then publicly announced that, uh, you know, as President Obama was leaving office to say, look, this is what they've done. We have to call it out. And again, the goal is to stop a threat like that from continuing. Now, the reason why this is a difficult spot for law enforcement is because under the hypothetical that you mentioned, if the president uh, you know, perhaps is, is corrupted by some kind of shady business dealing or some type of financial transaction as it relates to the Russians, he wouldn't have had to actually do something wrong, even if he was discussing doing something wrong, or if there's any type of leverage that the Russians could have over him, then that could be a potential, uh, obviously, counterintelligence threat. But if you're in the position of law enforcement, what do you do with that information? You're not going to you know, hold a press conference and call that out, which I think we go back to Congress. 
as the mechanism and the vehicle for really dealing with these issues. And it shows, especially in this hyper-partisan time, uh, you know, you go back and look, and I've, I've done a lot of research on this uh, for a book I'm writing on. You look at the House Intelligence Committee uh, and the Senate Intelligence Committee, they used to operate with such cohesion. Uh, they would check their party labels at the door as they walked into their uh, sensitive compartment and information facilities to do their work, and it didn't really matter what party they were. That's all been destroyed. That's all changed. Again, which makes it very difficult for these agencies that even if they did want to bring something to the attention of either body, you know, what would they do with that information? So I think it goes back to that that gang of eight we talked about. We have to have uh, a Department of Justice that's willing to cooperate with Congress. We know that they're at odds right now over the Mueller report. So I don't have a lot of hope that even if they the FBI wanted to brief Congress on something, uh, that that would get through this Department of Justice as we sit here. Now, you, we've, we've talked about, I mean, when we think of counterintelligence, we normally think of a bigger role, as, as Frank detailed in the first segment, about for, the, for the Bureau. And in, this, in these last few minutes, we've bandied about the names Chris Ray and Bill Barr. Um, I, I wonder when it comes to certain uh, decisions, whom to brief, what to brief, how to conclude things are wrapped up and the like, what's the sort of both structural, you know, on paper, but also actual practical uh, roles between the the head of the FBI, Chris Ray, and the Attorney General, Bill Barr. I think Chris Ray has established himself in a refreshing way in an otherwise kind of sad time in our history. He, he's a bright spot in that so far, he's, he seems to have indicated that he's going to speak the truth. Um, he recently testified on the Hill. He, he's recently been interviewed, and he's made no bones about the fact that the threat continues, that there's concern for the 2020 election. Um, he's, he's unafraid to say something that maybe not, may not be popular with his boss or the administration, and I find that refreshing. And Josh, I mean, part of this is also the, the kind of day-to-day morale of people within the Bureau who have taken, uh, you know, real hits uh, along with DOJ folks in the last few um, years. Do you have a sense, Chris Ray's sort of standing in the building, but particularly with the Bureau rank and file, and, and you know, what's your sense of his sort of effectiveness overall in his role as kind of leader of the troops. So he has certainly surprised people inside the FBI that I speak with. And I agree with Frank that he's a bright spot uh, in these dark times. And I say he surprised people because they weren't quite sure what to expect. And they were actually bracing for impact. Again, you had the FBI uh, director, James Comey, who someone who was widely regarded inside the organization, even by people who didn't necessarily agree with all of his decisions, thought he was a good leader, as uh, the FBI survey showed. But what was interesting is so you had the president now firing him and the FBI didn't know what they were going to get next. Was the president going to install a crony? Was he going to put someone in there, you know, similar to what Nixon did with Patrick Gray, you know, the, who never actually made it to become confirmed as FBI director, was basically the henchman of the of the president. Uh, we didn't get that. We got a principled public servant, someone who has stood up for the FBI, again, has rejected this use of spying, someone who is there understanding that his role in these times will be judged by how he defends his people. And so I think that that's that's really been a breath of fresh air and something that was unexpected. I will say this, though, although I just mentioned the bright spot, the next two years are going to be unlike anything we've seen as a country, certainly anything people inside the FBI has seen. The last two years have been terrible. Morale is in the tank. You have the president, the commander of chief, calling this organization corrupt. 
it's going to get much worse because I expect, and this is this collision of law enforcement and politics, that the president will be running on his victim narrative that he's been the victim of out-of-control law enforcement and intelligence. They've robbed him of his presidency. We're going to hear that going forward. And the reason why that's important is because for people like Chris Ray and others like him in government who are there to step up for the people, they're going to have their work cut out for them because, again, we're going to see a political campaign against our Department of Justice and our institutions uh, we just haven't seen. Yeah, I think the mantra of investigate the investigators uh, is is likely to go on, and that would have been something I would have assumed would have been squelched in a New York minute by Bill Barr, but it, but who knows whether he'll he'll indulge it. Um, Frank, do you you have a similar thought, and, and you know any basic ideas about what the next two years hold, both within the building and for the counterintelligence investigation in general? Yeah, I think for the counterintelligence investigation, let's not forget that the director can't unilaterally decide to go brief the Hill on the counterintelligence case. He has to get permission on what he's going to brief from the attorney general. This is just is the way it works in Washington. You don't go to the Hill without briefing your masters first, and that would be the attorney general. So let's look for the real possibility that the attorney general is going to say, no, you can't brief the counterintelligence investigation to the Hill. They're going to have to subpoena it. By the way, they already have. And he's going to claim some kind of classified exception or, or some kind of privilege to it. So look for that standoff to occur soon. It's time for our final segment, Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener and each of the feds has to answer in five words or fewer. And after all the uh, difficult and complicated questions for the, from the last hour, we'll end with a softball of sorts. Um, Frank, Josh, in five words or fewer, what made you want to be an FBI agent? Josh? Bringing justice to crime victims. Bringing justice to the unjust. And uh, I'll answer this why I became an AUSA, I guess, and I can name that tune in four words or fewer. Doing the right thing. Thank you very much to Frank and Josh. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to what I think was a really educational and enjoyable Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system and prosecutorial practice for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippou. Thanks to Mark McElmore, Ashley Westerman, Annie Chelsea, and Corey Fujikawa for recording this episode. 
And special thanks to Jane Lynch for schooling us on grand juries. And of course, thanks as always to the incredible Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.